0: Hi, and welcome to a new episode of Plant Services Toolbelt Podcast. I'm Tom Wilk, the Chief Editor of Plant Services, and thank you for joining us today for this new episode. You know, one of the ways that the COVID-19 pandemic is shaping industry is that it has brought renewed focus on the benefits that digitalization is bringing to plant operations, all the way from the stockroom up to the C-suite. Kevin Price is Technical Product Evangelist and Product Strategist at Infor, a global company that provides enterprise software products for every aspect of business. In this episode, Plant Services spoke with Kevin on how maintenance conversations are evolving, from Enterprise Asset Management, or EAM, up to Asset Performance Management, APM, as well as why reliability is taking a new urgency in our current post-crisis moment where digitalization is on the top of everyone's mind. Welcome to a special Solution Spotlight episode of the Tool Belt brought to you by Plant Services and sponsored by M4. I'm Tom Wilk, the Chief Editor of Plant Services, and today I'm joined by Kevin Price, Technical Product Evangelist and Product Strategist at M4. Kevin is a longtime contributor to Plant Services, having written several articles and presented on many of our webinars. And he's with us today to talk about current trends in asset reliability. You know, Kevin, you and I both do our best to stay in close touch with reliability and maintenance practitioners, especially this past year with the pandemic sweeping through the the world really. Um, And the topic of asset reliability has taken on a new urgency for those workers for that reason this past year. Can you tell us what you're hearing from your customers this year and why asset reliability has taken on a new urgency? Absolutely, there are several
1: factors um, in what we're seeing at least. It's not just several factors Um, that is is in specific industries, Um, it's really some themes that are going throughout and going throughout different regions of the world. So as you think, you know, we have a few thousand customers around the world. Um, We've been doing this since first line of code since 1986. And we've gone through the evolution of green screen to windows to whatever else that we have. And um, during that time, I've been fortunate enough to (laughs) having launched a lot of that for the last 24 years. Um, the ideas that we had on a whiteboard um, have, have, have worked. They've, they've come up, we think. Of course, not all of them. <laughs> there's some that, there's some that just, just were duds, but in this idea of asset reliability, we're seeing a resurgence um, of the word, a resurgence of the practice, and we're certainly seeing a resurgence in the need to be able to put it into what we offer in our solutions. Let me give you some examples. So if we look at the pandemic impact um, and just speak to that just one moment, um, when you ever have a downturn in an economy, um, you're gonna look at what assets you have and you're gonna wanna get the most that you can out of them. And that's always gonna be the case. In an upturn economy, what are you doing? You're buying new assets as much as you can. So there's always an asset management need, which makes it fortunate for people like us in this business, but at the same time, this moment, Um, We're looking at, as an example, transit organizations that are almost mothballing some of their over-the-road vehicles. Uh, Transportation companies are doing the same because people just aren't taking um, buses and, and other types of things. The ridership has really been impacted. If you look at some of the other organizations, they have to rethink how they're actually structured and how they run. Manufacturing organizations have to introduce six foot of separation between their workers. They have to reduce the amount of human touch points that they have on pieces of equipment. They have to really take their time in understanding how to be able to work all through that. Um, And there's another issue too, is we've always talked about you and I, especially over the years of IT OT conversions. So IT being information technology and OT being operational technology. And what we're finding is because of the pandemic example is a lot of our IT professionals that are out there um, don't want to to deal with systems anymore that are local. They wanna go to the cloud. And which is good for us. We have that conversation with them all the time. And we we offer the same thing on premise that we do in the cloud anyway. But the idea is now they're having to put on different hats. They're having to put on more OT hats than they have in the past. And what this means is they can't focus on a lot of the IT things anymore. And when you do that, um, you introduce a new concept of really looking at the business value that that practice begins um, to introduce and the impacts that they ultimately have to the workers and the process and of itself. And from EAM's perspective, what this means is reliability. Um, It's looking at making your assets last longer, looking at your failure analysis, doing different types of decay curves, doing things that are deep into the reliability mechanisms that we've had for years and continue to build upon. And the last thing I'll I'll call out as as a theme is what we're hearing because of these impacts and because of others is our customers want us and really are forcing us to evolve the application. Um, and what I mean by by that is way back when uh, we did CMMS and computerized maintenance management systems, for those who aren't familiar with the term, but that was really a work order system. You did stuff to, to make sure that you had it documented. It was a CYA mechanism, if you will. But the idea was they just did the work and then it evolved to enterprise asset management. So the focus was on the asset, on the condition, on different types of inspection variables, on things that you would do on the asset. And a little bit of of reliability was introduced there. And we did that long ago. We actually did some training on it, some implementation mechanisms, and we had partners that do it too. Well, now what's happening is the conversation is evolving from EAM to APM, um, APM being asset performance management. And some of the examples of things that you bring into the APM discussion are innovations around automation. So a lot of the condition monitoring, the internet of things stuff, uh visualization on digital twins all that kind of thing and you also have outputs that are interesting so we do asset investment plans today um, and what they're wanting to see is those being more models that you can tweak you can adjust what happens if production is going to be x or ridership is going to be y or my investment is going to be z or my 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 decline in budget for the next year is going to be a what do i do with with that kind of thing how do i model that asset investment plan for that particular year, or more specifically, how do I float that out to 5, 7, 10, 25 years in a capital asset plan? And they're wanting to see all that as part of the EAM. They're not wanting to see that as a third party integration. Um, it's, it's interesting um, because a lot of we do a lot of that kind of stuff in the past with integrations because the customers want to, which is fine. But we definitely think that. We agree that these concepts need to be part of what we do, and we have done them for a long time, but we're making them a lot more flexible, a lot more scalable, and a lot more model-esque, if you don't, if you don't mind using that word. But the idea is we, we get into this, uh, this conversation of not just the maintenance department and operations. You get into plant engineers, uh, which is where we want to see this conversation go. Um, in, in many different ways, you get into the CFO's office on the cost that you have for it, the COO's ability to, to represent that schedule and meet it. And of course, the CEO is responsible for everything. So a lot of those conversations are changing. And I definitely think that the whole idea of these three areas of impact um, were spurred on because of pandemic, but have always been there. And I think the natural progression from AAM to APM is happening and will happen, especially in our product line. But I definitely think it's all because of reliability. Uh, People are really going back to those ideas of reliability, asset reliability of what I can be able to do to make sure that the service that I provide to get revenue or the product that I create to get revenue is done in a way that's sustainable, that I know I can trust it, I can rely upon it, and I can do it in a safe way because I may not have now, especially as many people out in the field as as I used to think I have. And I have more systems now that are just sitting there collecting data that I don't do anything with it. And how can I take advantage of it? How can I build upon it? And it's, it's, it's exciting to, to, to see. It's definitely interesting, but for hearts like yours and mine, my friend, asset reliability words coming back into play. It's good to see, man. It just, it sees, it, it's
0: great. It, it just gives us more opportunity to really affect the world in a positive way. Oh, that's great. And the way you trace that evolution from CMMS to EEM to APM is fascinating in the context also of the kind of business outcomes that I think uh, people in the field are looking for. Uh, In some ways those those outcomes haven't changed, it's just that the methods to get there uh, using new assets have. Can you talk about what outcomes are most important these days? Um, Well,
1: that's uh, that's uh, critical. What you said is a lot of times those outcomes haven't changed. uh, the ability to provide those ad- outcomes have. And the reason why I say that is because a lot of the data is more available. It's more pervasive to be able to make those decisions. Um, there's more people involved in the, the conversation. Um, we, had a, we had a webinar that we did not too long ago um, in another organization with another, with another outlet. And they were talking about all the data that they collect, and they never knew what to do with it. So their rule of thumb was throw it in the data lake, we'll figure it out later. And like, what what, what do you mean? I said, well, there's so much data that comes in. I mean, it's impossible to be able to make any sense of it. It's impossible. It's, it's literally a deluge of data. So how do I deal with that? And we all knew that, right? Because we've been talking about that for years and and more equipment gets more and more and more data coming in. We have more vendors that come in to have attachment clamp, clamp-ons or different types of things to be able to get this data. And now it's there, it's sitting there, but what do we do with it? So this is the problem that, a lot of people have been able to see is how can I take that data and how can I build a business outcome of it? Um, And what does that business outcome look like? Is it getting more specific in the reliability nature? So the preventive maintenance schedules, the preventive maintenance um, techniques, approaches. Maybe I should be doing this type of asset management with a vendor or a contractor and not my own people. Uh, Maybe I should be using different types of materials. Maybe the materials that the OEM made me buy when I bought this equipment, I don't really need as much as I did. Um, these are types of questions that you look at in reliability that we would do in the past, but we didn't have as much data to be able to make sense of it all. And now you do. The values of reducing inventory have always been there, just like you said, but I can make more sense of it now because of the data. The value of implementing a mobile solution into the field. We've always known we want to keep guys out in the field and we want to be able to make sure that the wrench time is going to be continuing to improve, But have we really looked at the data that, that represents that time efficiency? Have we looked at the data that represents the accuracy of information when it's captured? Have we looked at the compliance issues on making sure that the drop downs are, are easy to select and go through and not have to be a bunch of scribble on a sheet of paper? And we haven't. But now that we're looking at this, I, I totally agree with you. A lot of these business outcomes and these values that we do have always been there. Um, and they're just now becoming a lot easier to obtain a lot more common to obtain, but again, I, I definitely think that there needs to be the mindset of asset reliability. There needs to be the vernacular of it. There needs to be the practice of it. There needs to be the the whole organizational structure behind it, and because of this pandemic, I definitely think, well, that the, the pandemic may be a little bit more in the post-pandemic if we can really say we're in that, but the idea is that you're looking at it more specifically than you did before, so it's, again, wonderful to see but as you mentioned, the, the goalposts were already there. And now maybe we're not 60 yards away. Maybe now we're 20. Well, I may not be able to hit it from 20. My own foot, I'm old now. So maybe it's
0: 10. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hear you on, on the post-pandemic part, too. As, as we record this for listeners, it's uh, June 11 in 2021. So things are slowly slowly opening up again. Um, in fact, I'm calling it from Chicago, Kevin. And Chicago just hit what they call phase five today, which is full reopening. I'm curious oh, wow. to- impact as as cities and states roll out what that's going to look like for industry. The pandemic made me think of cultural resistance to certain programs as people shifted over to a new way of doing business on the line. As you said, six-foot distance between employees, uh, health checks on the way into the plant, uh, things like that, for example. And it's sort of a truism that the the, the, the toughest resistance to, to reliability programs is cultural you know, getting people to get on board and embrace that change. And I agree with you that reliability is coming back uh, in a big way now, which is fantastic. What role do you see asset management software playing in helping teams overcome any kind of internal resistance to reliability? Jeez. Um,
1: So totally agree with you. The the most difficult things, the people, products, processes are people. And you have to get it right. And um, the, the asset management programs need to really, empower the people and the people need to be able to adopt it in a big way let me give you just a quick it's a funny story but it's a quick story it's from oil and gas and years ago uh, we've been doing development well I've been doing development a long time and this was a long time ago when um, the Windows CE if you remember that um, was actually in um, a development phase it was called Pegasus at the time and we were doing some work with Microsoft and we're working with an oil and gas customer that was in the field, and we were working with a hardware provider on a specific type of device that they wanted to use, and it was supposed to be intrinsically safe, it was supposed to drop in the water, and after a certain amount of time, automatically reset itself so that the data doesn't go floating, literally, to another country, um, so this was is an issue that they wanted to develop over, and man, did it, I mean, we, we got it, we got a solution, we developed it together, it was, it was really nice, it was elegant, and we got it working, and it was there, it was an enabler, it was going to be awesome, it was expensive. Because back then, these hardware pieces were expensive. Now, heck, you can get an Android device, throw it into a case, and be fine with it for the most part. You want to do different things in different industries, but they're cheap. And from our development, now we have these things all the time. But back then, I mean, this was, this was expensive. Five figures a piece, but you know, not high five figures, but expensive. So we deployed them out. We gave them to the guys in the field. Um, and they're on the platforms. And what we found is no one would use them. They wouldn't even touch them. Um, and so there was a people problem and we we're asking, why is, why is this, what's going on? And, uh, the project manager on the customer side said, son, have you ever been on a platform in an oil rig? And I said, actually, no, um, have not done that. So they got me to go one and they got me out there and they said, what do you see? I said, there's a lot of stuff and it's really dangerous here. And he said, what do you feel? I said, it's really hot. He said, yep. Walk with me. So we walked down this little, stop pathway we went to an office and it was air conditioning he said see here this is where the computer is it feels good in here doesn't it it's like yes this is why the guys don't use your hardware because they want to come in where it's air conditioned and they want to do it where it's nice and it's easy to type this stuff in they don't want to be out in the field typing on some type of gun and I was like yeah I get it um so my point of that story is people are always always a challenge but you have to walk in the day in the life of their shoes understand what to do, why, when, how, when, where. Um, One of the biggest, biggest uh, efforts that we try to spend on usability, we spend a lot of time on usability and we actually lead in some of those efforts around usability and won won some awards around it, is around mobility. Um, We definitely think mobile needs to be a part of a natural extension of our system. It has to be who we are because that's who we are. We're out in the field. And when you think about asset management software enabling that, that success of the reliability program, you have to give guys the right tools at the right place at the right time. Um, now, it may not be a mobile solution, it may be a kiosk, because we do articulating arms and kiosks, that go down, they can type it in. Um, it may be a mobile solution that's you know, their own, the BYOD, bring your own device thing. Um, it needs to be brought up. And one time we had a, we had an interesting guy say, well, I'm never gonna use this, my guys aren't gonna use this, it's not gonna happen, it's just gonna be frustrating. They don't use this kind of software, they don't know what this tech is, really. It's like yeah so walked around they all got iphones more recent than me and i like, do what do they use facebook It's like they do they know how to use the mobile solution then <laughs> it's just it's just a willingness to accept it and go through so you have a you still have a cultural change and tom you know as well as i do this aspect has been around for 20 30 years of just willingness to adopt the tech once you can once you can really go over you overturn that hurdle and really get to where they can understand it's not that bad it actually helps you improve your 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 operating environment. It helps you improve the goals that we're trying to get to. And it can make your life a lot easier. It's good, but there, there's that process of going back to the basics of, and which is what reliability is doing, and it's forcing us to go back to those basics, but going back to the basics of usability. They want to be able to make sure you have the right thing, the right place, the right time, and the right way. And we always say that one of the most natural things we can ever see is a maintenance technician sitting behind a computer. Um, you should be able to have that guy in the field doing what he or she does best and making sure that you're arming that person as well as you can, because you wanna get them into the system, but more importantly, you wanna get them out. Um, You wanna make sure that you have the right data captured. And from a software perspective, that should be our challenge. That shouldn't be the customer's challenge. The customer should just be able to configure it, pick and choose. They They shouldn't develop this on their own. They shouldn't worry about integration on their own. They shouldn't worry about the synchronization on their own. That's our problem. Um, that's why we, we take on a lot of that. But you're right. Um, as a whole, the, the, the people is, is a problem. But I definitely think that the, the technology is getting to a point where it's very flexible to be able to make it a lot easier. And of course, with, you know, folks out in the field, in their house, um, doing their own day-to-day life, they're getting more exposed to these types of things. But at the end of the day, these kids, I use the, probably a bad word, but young professionals coming out of school, they don't want to see a laptop they don't want to see a desktop for sure and they want to see everything that is, is on a mobile solution and just for that particular task that's where we got to be does um, that makes sense
0: it does it does and you know it's funny when i talk to the asset management professionals that i know who are under 30s i see them at coastal events in boston at ptc liveworks and oh, yeah. and, and at uh osi Soft's, uh pyworld event down in san francisco Um, And I agree with you that that they want to bring their uh, devices with them and work on the go.
1: Well, let me ask you this question on this nature. Um, And the asset reliability definition is really getting more into innovation. Um, What I've had a lot of conversations with people love to hear your perspective is when you have new folks that are coming out of college like this, especially a lot of the STEM graduates are already having high tech type of work that they're doing. Um, And it's almost to the point where the prescriptive nature of asset management, meaning we can predict when it's going to fail and we have a system reply back what to do and what to prescribe to be able to avoid that failure. Um, what we're seeing is the potential for that to kind of remove a lot of the industrial engineering expertise because the system's literally telling you do X, do Y, do Z. It's just like you, it tells you to replace the ink cartridge in your, in your printer. I mean, now when, when my, my daughter is older now, but when she was younger, she figured out how to do that. She was just waiting for it to break because she knew how to do it. She was excited, she was proud of herself to do it. And hell, it was great for me because I didn't have to do it. But the issue is that she would follow along the little screen and step by step, she would go directly through it and resolve it. My fear is that these systems may become too easy to use. They may become too pervasive where we don't need that level of expertise anymore. And it'll change the face of what engineering looks like, especially in industrial engineering and industrial manufacturing. Do you see that kind of thing, too?
0: You know, I see it in a couple of ways, Kevin. I do see it happening. Um, what I think of this question in the context of people who are entering the reliability and maintenance profession uh, directly, so that that's the scope of my answer. Um, I see a lot of uh, apprenticeship programs and a lot of uh, postgrad programs, say the one, like the one that Klaus Blake runs at University of Tennessee Knoxville, creating a good pipeline for advanced technicians and reliability engineers to enter the field. What I also see is people who work in, who, who have studied uh, analytics in their colleges and yeah. colleges, who, about three years into their career, suddenly look at Industry 4.0 and manufacturing as an incredible opportunity to make a career with what they know. So they come in sideways. Uh, they are, they aren't the ones trained in maintenance reliability. They, they discover a second hand and then apply their analytics expertise to the data that we're collecting from the machines. Um, and then you know I, those are the two main pathways that I'm seeing. And there's always a, there's a third ground too where um, the planners and schedulers I think are taking on a new importance in today's plant teams because they're taking on this expanded role to manage a lot of oems whose assets have become too complex for the average yes, to yes, repair yes, yes. um so it's, it's this interesting third branch half planner scheduler half contract manager to make sure that if the plant can't afford full-time expertise on certain assets then those who are training with the oems themselves can come in so those are the three things i'm seeing i don't know if that aligns with what you're seeing
1: well, I'd like to add a little bit to that too, because if you think about those, those level of STEM and what they're doing, um, and having that data analytic background, introducing it into reliability, if you can add, if it's if it was possible to have the unicorn, right? Is to is to add in a little bit of computer design, a little in the re, and a little bit a little bit more of psychology that's into that industrial psychology, then we would have the perfect the perfect person. Not only that do, do you do with all this data. Not only do they know how to deal with it from an engineering perspective, reliability perspective, but again, they know how to bring it in a very easy to consume way. Um, you don't need to have 20 different options that go through because that's more of the engineering side of the brain. You need to have it a little bit more of the right side of the brain that speaks to how can I get in? How can I get out? How can I move? And at N4, we we try to ma- marry that engineering and elegance together all the time. Um, we have a group called Hook and Loop. Um, And it's our our group, the hook and loop comes from um, Velcro. So you have a a hook and then you have a loop that holds it in, right? And um, we're trying to marry that elegance with the engineering that goes through it on a regular basis. And it's it's very difficult. (laughs) It's very difficult to do that because not only do you have to make it to where it's user-specific, it's role-specific, it's industry-specific, it's geography-specific, and perhaps now it's device-specific. But it's, it's getting to the business challenge that you want to be able to get. And it can be re- reproducible and configurable for the next opportunity. So I tell you, if these, these, these guys and girls that are coming out of school, these men and women, these, these, these new professionals that are coming out, I really think the world is a lot different. It always is. But it's, it's a lot different in terms of the types of tools that are, are, they're ready to use. I just, the only thing I fear for them is what's going to happen and what happens all the time is they get all these new tools, they're excited, they're jazzed, they're ready to go. And then they go into the, the industries and the and the, con- the customers that you and I have seen and it's a green screen. And they're like, what? <laughs> what? What is this? What? I, I thought Windows 3.1 died. Is, is It's still running right up. It's back there. I saw it. It's it, it still around. And it, they have an opportunity to be able to do great things in reliability and do great things in the performance. So I, I really think the... The, the, the pandemic impacts and these natures that we talk about return to liability has really given us a new dimension um, into the future and really into the immediate future.
0: No, I, I agree. Uh, the, these new professionals are whip smart and we're lucky to work oh, with yeah. one right now is working out in North Carolina. He's writing a new blog for us about uh, taking reliability best practices and applying them to SMBs, which is kind of where he works at a smaller plant. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned an important thing about psychology uh, um, that, that you know, a lot of times it can take persuading from the ground up too. When when reliability reliability professionals want to bring in a champion or champions on board. Uh, for our last question of the podcast, could you talk a little bit about what it takes from that ground level perspective? Uh, is it a little psychology, a, a little a little benchmarking KPI ROI persuasion? What does it take to bring the champion on board?
1: The last, the things that, that I think are going to matter the most is how can you take that ground level example that you're looking for and make sense of it at that C-suite level? In order to be able to do that, um, you need to understand the use case. You need to understand the value that comes behind it. Um, and uh, our, our ownership now is, is Coke Industries. <clears throat> they, they've invested in this several times and they've written books on, on this type of stuff. Um, market-based management. There's a book called uh, Good Profit that's by Charles Koch. And one of the reasons um, why they're successful is because they have a relationship, a good profit, where what we mean by that is we're able to bring value um, to our customers to the extent that it's, it's it increases their profit, reduces their cost, is <clears throat> sustainable and reliable. And what we do to be able to get to that point is we go through something called a DMF, which is a decision-making framework. And effectively, there's a lot of steps that are involved with it, but it's a lot of detail to basically look at that use case, understand the economic benefit that it can have to the organization from a low level to a high level, what the end goals could be, um, what the framework elements could be in in the impact of perhaps production, uh, either reducing costs, increasing margin, or the safety that we offer in that production process, or maybe it's a service that we do, but the idea is to, to really go deep and understand how that impact can be made. And when we think about that approach, it's really collaborative, because it could start at the very, very lowest levels of someone, I got a plan, I got an idea. Well, that's good. But put it on a framework that we, we can actually communicate, and we can collaborate, and we can be able to articulate both qualitative and quantitatively the value that we can bring. And then, well, how do we do that? I don't know where to go. I just know that every time this asset fails, this is the reason why. Well, great. Um, But let's document it out. Let's go through it. So you have to bring about a culture um, that understands how to identify that, how to be able to to justify it. And when you do that, you'll find that, hey, man, you need to to do some investment in these types of tools for monitoring. Maybe you need to upgrade your asset management system. Maybe you need to upgrade the equipment. Um, Maybe you need to upgrade the collection process that's built into it. You can't do that unless you have the investment, so we got to prove that. So let's build a framework for how decisions work. Let's build a framework for how collaborations work, and then we'll rise it uh, through each rank. Because if we're able to improve the process product, make it safer, make it more reliable, make it more sustainable, then it's going to help the next person above, and the next person above, and the next person above, and the next person above. Um, and when you get to that point where the C-level is going to take interest, they're going to be taking interest because of the positive effect that it has, which is the good profit that we're able to provide to our customers. If we're able to provide good profit for them, we're able to get good profit ourselves. Um, so the idea behind that, that whole um, partnership, that equilibrium that we have between the two is one of the reasons why I think it's important to, to bring in collaboration feedback from every level of the organization so that it affects the C-suite. But to do that, it really needs to be structured. Um, That calibration um, exercise that you want to do, the new equipment that you want to buy, the new tools that you want to buy for calibration um, makes sense. But you need to be able to structure it in a way that we can be able to grow it, build it. It doesn't mean that you're going to say no, but you're going to build it up. So by the time it it blossoms its way to a decision-making authority, it makes sense. And what also is important is once you make that decision, um, you have a standard by which you can be measured for success. So you always want to have a decision made, but at the end of the day, you don't want to forget why you did it, and you want to make sure you have an impact and documented an impact, and that's why it becomes repeatable as it starts to go through. So these are the things that we see here internally. Um, we argue all the time about what feature function to add or what product to build or what market to go after, but um, a lot of times we could be the, the, uh, the kingdom of no. Because we want you to sell it first. We want you to make sure that it makes sense first. And if it does, then it's easy to easy to, to find and justify. And we'll invest in anything that can help our customers. But it's hard to get to that C-suite, definitely, um, if you don't have that structure. But I think with with the tech, with the, with the goals, with the use cases that we have now, it's a lot easier. It's just got to be frameworked in a big way.
0: Okay. Well, Kevin, I can't believe we are at time, and it's, always a great, it's, it's such a pleasure to work with you and talk with you. Thanks again for being here today. Always. Thank you very much. I always
1: appreciate the conversation and the chance to be able to talk about this stuff. As you know, it's it's part of who I am. It's part of who we are. I know it's part of you, too.